landmark win under Pennsylvania's Green Amendment to its Constitution led Maya Van Rossum to imagine much, much more. It was in the wake of that victory and recognizing how powerful what we had accomplished was that I started to think about the power of using our state and federal constitutions to protect environmental rights in this most powerful way. And I looked at every state constitution across the nation and I found that only Montana had a provision comparable to Pennsylvania's. And I decided I was gonna change that and I was gonna get an amendment of this kind in every state constitution across our nation and ultimately at the federal level. And so that's what the Green Amendment movement's all about. We talk with Maya Van Rossum about her book, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. Then, in honor of Martin Luther King's birthday this week, we re-air our 2018 interview with David Margulik about his book, The Promise and the Dream. It's about the relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rihanna. On November 2nd, 2021, New Yorkers voted to amend the state's constitution to enshrine into law each person's right to clean air and water and a healthful environment. With the adoption of this Green Amendment, New York became the third state in the nation to include environmental rights in its Bill of Rights, following Pennsylvania in 1971 and Montana in 1972. The movement to get a Green Amendment into New York's Constitution was spearheaded by the grassroots organization Green Amendments for the Generations. My guest, Maya K. Van Trossum, is the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, and the group is working to secure constitutional recognition and protection of environmental rights in every state and ultimately at the federal level. Van Rossum has written a terrific book about the Green Amendment movement, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. I spoke with her in December. Here's that conversation. Maya Van Rossum, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks so much for having me. You have been called the mother of the Green Amendment movement, and this whole journey started when you were the Delaware Riverkeeper and fracking came to Pennsylvania. Tell us how you got into this. So I have had the honor of serving as the Delaware Riverkeeper and leader of a four-state organization called the Delaware Riverkeeper Network for nearly 30 years now. And I still have the honor of bearing that title and having that role, but I do now have this new body of work called the Green Amendment Movement. Um, In my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, we had been fighting fracking for a a very long time. Um, And in fact, there's no fracking anywhere within the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed because of the leadership and work of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. But outside of the watershed boundary, particularly in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, 
fracking was running roughshod over Pennsylvania's communities and environments because the way the law was written, it made it pretty easy for the industry to advance um, and really have their way with Pennsylvania communities and natural resources. But the way I say it, for the frackers, it wasn't easy enough. And so in 2012, Pennsylvania um, leaders from the fracking industry got together and wrote for themselves a piece of legislation that was called Act 13 and was literally a gift basket to the industry. It did things like put in place automatic waivers from environmental protection standards that would apply to every other industry and mandated that local communities allow fracking in every part of, of every community, including fracking well pads being located as close as 300 feet from people's homes. And those are just two examples of how bad it was. So we at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network knew that we had to find a way to challenge this law. The law was passed by the, again, was written by the frackers. It was passed by the Pennsylvania legislature in 2012 and was really positioned to make the fracking industry expand exponentially across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So when this law was passed, we at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network were thinking, how can we challenge it? Because fracking anywhere is bad for all of us everywhere. And it would certainly pump up the pressure to have fracking come into our watershed. And so we were thinking strategically, how do we take this on? And we remembered that in the Pennsylvania Constitution, in the Bill of Rights section, there was a long ignored amendment that recognized the right of all Pennsylvanians to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. And so we thought that we were in a moment in time when this pro-fracking law passed by the Pennsylvania legislature was so egregious that maybe we could get the Pennsylvania courts to over, to defeat that law as being an unconstitutional infringement on the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. And so we brought a legal challenge making exactly that claim. The case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And in December of 2013, a very conservative Supreme Court actually struck down the provisions of the law that we were challenging because they said that the law would in fact violate the Environmental Rights Amendment of the Pennsylvania Constitution. And so in that moment, we defeated that pro-fracking law before it ever got a chance to get started and inflict such tremendous devastation on Pennsylvania communities. It was in the wake of that victory and recognizing how powerful what we had accomplished was that I started to think about the power of using our state and federal constitutions to protect environmental rights in this most powerful way. And I looked at every state constitution across the nation, and I found that only Montana had a provision comparable to Pennsylvania's. And I decided I was going to change that. And I was going to get an amendment of this kind in every state constitution across our nation and ultimately at the federal level. And so that's what the Green Amendment movement's all about. Well, it's really a terrific story. And yet, it's not easy to get a constitutional amendment passed, especially on the federal level. I mean, the ERA is still not passed. It takes something like, I don't know, two-thirds or three-quarters of the states to approve. How realistic is it really that we can pass enough green amendments 
to make a difference. You are so right to raise that point. And there are a couple of really good answers. So you're right. To get an amendment at the federal level is a very, very high bar. And that is one reason why my Green Amendment movement is focused first on state constitutions, because actually state constitutions are amended with relative regularity. Um, and making those changes is very accessible for the people of that state if they engage in good grassroots organizing and activism and education efforts. And so my goal is to go state by state by state to seek and secure passage of these constitutional green amendments, because in the United States of America, the states have a tremendous amount of power when it comes to environmental protection. And so if we get these amendments at the state level, we do get really strengthened protections within the borders of that state. And as we're going state by state, educating people about the importance of Green Amendment protections and how powerfully it transforms environmental protection, we are laying the foundation necessary to ultimately get a federal Green Amendment. Because you're right, it does take three quarters of the states to get that passed and added to the Constitution. Now, that being said, I also want to acknowledge at the state level, it is also a higher hurdle to get an amendment added to the Constitution. On the other hand, that means it's also a higher hurdle to get an amendment removed. So once we get a Green Amendment added to the state Constitution, that is recognizing and protecting the rights of all the people of the state to clean water and clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments. Not only do we get that heightened protection, but we are very unlikely to ever lose it because of that higher standard for getting a constitutional change. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with Maya K. von Rossum about the movement to enshrine into state constitutions, and ultimately the federal one, the right of all people to clean air and water and a healthful environment. She's a leader of the movement, and her book about it is called The Green Amendment. And yet the path is thorny. Uh, you say, you tell the cautionary tale in the first case that was actually brought in Pennsylvania to use that constitutional amendment. Tell us that story, what happened, and what does it teach us? So one of the important things to know is that every Green Amendment is an environmental rights amendment, but not every environmental rights amendment is a Green Amendment. And my Green Amendments meet certain criteria that lift up environmental rights so they are given the same highest constitutional standing and protection as the other fundamental rights we hold dear. Things like free speech and freedom of religion. So that's important to know because really almost every state constitution talks about the environment. Many talk about environmental rights, but only two, Pennsylvania and Montana, when I began this journey, and now New York, because we successfully got a Green Amendment passed in November of 2021. So now only three states actually have Green Amendments that give that highest constitutional protection. Now, Pennsylvania's Green Amendment was actually added to the Constitution in 1971. Um, it passed by unanimous vote by two consecutive 
sessions of the Pennsylvania legislature and by a vote of four to one of the people and then got added to the Constitution. But almost as soon as this powerful language was added to the Bill of Rights section of the Pennsylvania Constitution, there were legal actions brought that really were not appropriate and didn't make sense. And the one that that most profoundly resulted in the undermining of Pennsylvania's amendment was a legal challenge to an educational viewing tower that was going to be built to look out over the Gettysburg battlefield, that field of war. And by all accounts, the educational viewing tower had been you know, minimized to the great, greatest degree possible. So it actually wouldn't inf infringe on sort of the view of the battlefield. But regardless, there were those who brought a legal challenge to that educational tower, claiming that it would violate the Environmental Rights Amendment of the Pennsylvania Constitution that had just been added. And you can imagine that the Pennsylvania um, courts looked at this legal challenge and thought to themselves, oh my gosh, if this is how this Environmental Rights Amendment is going to be used, we don't want to have anything to do with it. And they actually passed uh, or rendered early decisions on that case and a few others that essentially declared Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment, what I have defined to be a Green Amendment, as being just a statement of policy. And in the law, a statement of policy is merely advice. You can take it or you can leave it. And the Pennsylvania legislators left it for 42 years until that 2012 legal action that I and my Delaware Riverkeeper Network organization brought against that pro-fracking Act 13 law. And that legal challenge um, was the first time that the amendment, that that 42 years of bad precedent where the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania was just considered to be good policy, that actually got overturned in our Act 13 case. And I think it was because the court could see in light of this very egregious overreach by industry and by their friends in the legislature that they needed to reconsider Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment and overturn that 42 years of bad precedent and actually give the amendment the same quality of legal life that other fundamental freedoms in the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution are given. Right. And so it was it was in that period. It was it was just bad, bad choices in terms of the early cases that were brought that resulted in an early undermining of the amendment. But because that language was in the Bill of Rights section of the state constitution, we were able to come back 42 years later and get the Pennsylvania courts to reconsider that bad precedent and actually overturn it. So the lesson is be careful what battles you pick. 100%. And in fact, as we, you know, are going forth advancing this Green Amendment movement, I bring forth, as you call it, this cautionary tale early on. And after we got a New York Green Amendment passed in November of 2021, one of the first messages that I and our partners in the state of New York were spreading to those who are now trying to consider how to take advantage of the new constitutional right to clean water and air and a healthful environment in New York State, we were making clear we have to be careful about those first choices of legal cases that 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 people are going to bring forth. 
so that that early precedent that we secure is powerful, positive precedent and starts to build a wall of strength for the environment and communities and doesn't do the opposite and actually get the courts to become so afraid of the amendment that they run away from it and actually undermine it and don't give it the same respect as given to as is given to other bill of rights provisions so maya van rossum let me ask you about that New York Amendment. I live in New York State. I'm on my town's Energy and Sustainability Committee. Just yesterday, we had a meeting in which we were discussing uh, setting up a land use committee to deal with the fact that there are several. First of all, there's a lot of overdevelopment in this town, East Hampton, which used to be semi-rural and now is becoming just like a suburb. And with enormous houses, and there are several plots of land. There's an airport that's highly polluting that's used by just 1% of the population, the billionaires who are striving to keep it open. Other people are striving to close it. And there are several adjacent parcels of lands that are up for horrendous development that would uh, affect our aquifer our sole source aquifer, uh, affect also greenhouse gas emissions, traffic, etc. I don't see any evidence of anyone having used the New York environment, you know, green amendment. It was passed to, uh, a year a year ago. Is that right? You said 2021. Um, I, I don't see anybody thinking about how to use it in these cases. And I have no clue. So how could one, how can we actually use this amendment? It seems to have been passed and then just fallen into obscurity. Well, one of the things about um, about constitutional amendments and this Green Amendment movement, which frankly I find rather striking and surprising, is that it um, it kind of rides under the radar for many, many people, even those in environmental activism circles and in environmental legal circles, as the amendment is advancing and or gets passed and people are thinking about utilizing it, there there are many people who don't know about it, don't understand it, or aren't um, aware of what's going on because usually people don't talk about the environment in, in the constitutional context. So you know, people are used to talking about the Clean Water Act or state laws, but now not constitutional environmental rights that are that are meaningful and enforceable. So it's just very interesting to me because actually in the state of New York, we have had a couple of interesting cases that have been filed, only a couple, right? When green amendments get added to state constitutions, it does not result in this onslaught of, of litigation or frivolous legal actions the way the opposition suggests will happen. We actually get a few very thoughtful cases brought every year that are worthy of attention. And that's what has happened in the state of New York. There have been three or four cases that have been filed. And actually, um, just recently, the first case came down that really provided a lot of important clarity when it comes to how to interpret the New York Green Amendment. This was a case filed by local residents challenging action by the state of New York to advance the continuing operations of a landfill. Frankly, the challenge was to actions 
and omissions by the state of New York that allowed this landfill or is allowing this landfill to continue to operate in ways that the community says has really devastating consequences for their air, their air quality, and their right, now their constitutional right, to clean air. When they brought the legal challenge after the amendment was added, challenging new actions and or omissions by the state that had taken place after the amendment was added to the Constitution. They weren't going back in time. This was like fresh stuff that was happening. The court filed or the state filed for a motion to dismiss, wanting to get the court to set aside the lawsuit. And amongst the claims they made were claims that it was inappropriate for the local residents to use the Article 1, Section 19 of the New York Constitution the New York Green Amendment, to challenge what was happening here. And the court sided with the people and said, no, you are not entitled to a motion to dismiss. This is a very appropriate legal action, including the constitutional claims, that the language of the constitutional environmental right is plain and is clear And it is very clear that the state does not have the right to behave in a way that results in an infringement of the Constitution. And in this case, the constitutional right of the people to clean water and air and a healthful environment. And they they offered a number of other really interesting, um, clarifying determinations regarding New York's Green Amendment that are similar to, to the kinds of decisions we see in Pennsylvania and Montana and are really offering clarity and strength over what it means to have a constitutional right for the people and also offering clarity on what it is that government officials in New York State need to do when it comes to environmental issues. And one of them is to understand and respect the rights of the people to clean water and air in a healthful environment and to fulfill their constitutional obligation to ensure that their government actions or omissions don't result in an infringement on the right. And so what that means for a local town council, like you're talking about, right, or a committee, amongst the things that you have to do now that there is this um, New York Green Amendment is you have to make sure that you are thinking about how your actions will affect the environmental rights of the people of your community. And you have to look at science and the impacts of your decisions. You have to consider cumulative impacts um, and really engage in a very thoughtful decision-making process that speaks to the constitutional right of the people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment. That's the first thing you have to do as a council member. And if you are doing that and you are doing that earnestly and honestly and well, then the actions and the decisions that you make and take are likely going to be worthy of of support out of the courts would there be a legal challenge. Whether or not that legal challenge was brought by the people who felt like you were infringing on their, their rights or brought by industry or developers who felt like you were being too protective, right? It, it cuts both ways. But for, for local government officials, this is really a powerful tool that they can use to better protect their environment. And we've shown that in Pennsylvania and Montana already, and we're starting to see that in the state of New York with the New York Green Amendment. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with Maya Van Rossum about her book, The Green Amendment. 
You mentioned Pennsylvania. We just saw recently in Dinock, Pennsylvania, the place where that famous video of the water coming out of the faucet being set on fire by holding a match to it. You know, the the fracking company had to made a huge settlement with the town to compensate them for all the the terrible health effects that they had inflicted upon them. And then the company went just right back to fracking. So if Pennsylvania has such a robust Green Amendment, how has fracking been able to take over so much of the state? So the interesting thing, this is actually becomes one of the arguments that the opposition in industry use to push back against passage of green amendments in other states, right, including the fracking industry. They say, well, look, in Pennsylvania, you still have environmental pollution and degradation, even fracking. So really, truly, Maya, how powerful can this constitutional green amendment pathway actually be? Well, there are a couple of answers to that, as always, but I'll try to make it as simple as possible. First and foremost, Pennsylvania's Green Amendment has only had legal life for less than 10 years now, right? We only overturned that 42 years of bad precedent and literally breathed legal life into Article 1, Section 27 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, Pennsylvania's Green Amendment, in December of 2013, That's not a very long period of time to have a new constitutional right and to have it affect all aspects of the of environmental protection in people's lives that need to be affected by it. Right. We can think about the rights to free speech and freedom of religion, for example. We have had those fundamental freedoms for hundreds of years. And yet there, and we, so we have a pretty good idea of what it means to have those rights in a lot of places, spaces, and contexts. But even then, there are still legal challenges that come up when there are new dynamics or situations that the law hasn't spoken to yet, where people raise those constitutional rights in order to defend them and get clarity on how government has to protect them. Well, when we're talking about environmental rights, we're just at the beginning, at the very beginning of that process of understanding what it means. So that's number one, right? It's not like like in New York or New Mexico where we have a robust movement happening or Iowa or Florida or Washington or Hawaii or Maine. I mean, it's not when these amendments get passed that poof, instantly, all bad environmental stuff like disappears. No, we now have a right. We have a new constitutional tool we can use to defend our right as humans, as people here on this earth, to have a clean, safe, and healthy environment. But we have to use that tool case by case, situation by situation, to define and understand and implement that new right. And we also have to remember, fracking got to Pennsylvania before Pennsylvania's Green Amendment had legal life. So the frackers were there running rampant. And we, when we got legal life breathed into our Green Amendment, we are now having to go back in the fracking context as well to figure out in different situations, what does it now mean to have this constitutional right? I can tell you, I think if Pennsylvania had a living, thriving Green Amendment before fracking came to Pennsylvania, we could have used the amendment to keep the frackers out. But as it is, the frackers got there first. 
And so now the job is different and it's going to take a longer period of time to get the protections we need from that industry and others. Let me ask you going forward, how we can use a green amendment like this, not just in our state, but in any state to deal with the climate crisis. For example, uh, let's look at homeowners, you know, whose homes will be swallowed by the ocean because of the actions of the fossil fuel industry. It feels like it's almost too big for it to come under something like a Green Amendment, and yet the Green Amendment is exactly relevant to the idea that we all have a right to a healthy environment. So give us some ideas of how this can be used. Uh, for example, with with the gas industry that's now trying to tout renewable natural gas, you know, for keeping up a fossil fuel infrastructure that will literally destroy us. So... First and foremost, just to offer a, a period to the end of a point that you were you were implicitly making, there's no such thing as renewable natural gas. And there's no such thing as natural gas that's good for the environment or good for the climate. The two are mutually exclusive when it comes to fracking. Um, so I just want to make sure people understand that's where that's where I come from. The thing to note also and to recognize that when it comes to a constitutional right. The right applies to or affects government action. So when people are using the Green Amendment to secure better climate protection or environmental protection, they are looking to those government actions and activities that are fueling the problem or supporting a solution. So laws, regulations, permits and permitting, approvals, that kind of thing. But we have to remember, right, like the fracking industry can't advance or a particular industrial operation at a particular location can't happen absent the government permissions necessary to allow it to happen. So that's how how we address that. You are right, of course, the climate crisis is huge in terms of impact. And the, the the solutions necessary are similarly huge. On the other hand, absent a constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, and the new green amendments that we are advancing in other states explicitly mention the right to a stable climate. So Pennsylvania, Montana, and New York do not for varying reasons, but New Mexico and Maine and Washington, these states are being very explicit. And I'm encouraging them to be very explicit about recognizing the right to a stable climate as amongst the fundamental freedom. So there's no question that the constitutional right and obligation applies to climate issues. But if you don't mention climate, like in New York, we talk about the right to clean air and a healthful environment. Well, Climate comes very much under those, right? Air pollution is what causes the climate crisis, decimation of critical habitats that can help be, um, you know, carbon sinks, decimation of those habitats, right? That is that is a violation of the right to a healthful environment. So even absent the language, we can get to the climate issue. Um, but that being said, if if we don't have a constitutional right to a clean, safe and healthy environment and a stable climate that belongs to we, the people, so that when government fails to protect these rights, we can hold them accountable because the right is now ours. In the absence of that, all we have 
is the same failing political process that exists right now where our environment and our climate is part of the politicking and the negotiating and the swapping of money and favors within a political process to try to try to get some semblance of laws that address these environmental issues and these laws when they are passed hands down across the board all end up being focused on legalizing pollution, degradation, and devastation through reviews and permitting. They are not actually focused on preventing the harm first. But I would rather have the right to a stable climate and a healthy environment be a fundamental constitutional right of the people that we, the people, can enforce than to leave it to the vagaries of the political process, which is just about politicking and negotiations and and deal swapping. Right. Because in that in that dynamic, which is where we are now, which is where we have been throughout the history of our nation and that dynamic, we will always lose because government will at some level or another always sell us out. And then we don't have any way to hold them accountable because our constitutional because through our Constitution, we gave them the authority to sell us out. But with a Green Amendment, we're taking that power back so we can hold them accountable when they sell us out. Wow, that is so powerful. Maya van Rossum, your book is really terrific. I mean, it has a whole lot of stories that are really interesting that we don't have time to go into, but I highly recommend this to all my listeners, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. It's been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for helping to spread the word. I really believe in this powerful pathway for protection, and I appreciate the opportunity to share the message with your listeners. Maya K. Fantrosum. Go to writersvoice.net to learn more about her organization, Green Amendments for the Generations. Next up, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Stay tuned after the break. And we honor Dr. King's birthday today. We re-air our 2018 interview with David Margulik about his book, The Promise and the Dream. It's about a story that lay hidden until Margulik uncovered it, the relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, and the crucial role that relationship played in the passage of civil rights legislation in the U.S., Margulik explores the untold story of the complex and ever-evolving relationship between these two American icons, a complicated mix of mutual assistance, wariness, antagonism, and admiration that existed between the two. It was a relationship based less on physical proximity, the two men rarely met, and more on the political roles the two men played, as Margulik explains. The record was very hidden, but because they were so important to one another and they were each so strategically located, um, they were acutely aware of what each other was doing, and therefore um, their relationship, though hidden, was absolutely essential and, and essential to understand. I mean, in a way... They're the most important white man and black man interacting with one another for several years in the 1960s. And so therefore, I knew there was a relationship, but I couldn't rely on an extensive correspondence between them. There weren't a lot of phone calls between them. 
It was really a matter of talking to people who had known both of them and could describe the ways in which they saw one another and maneuvered around one another. It was even hard, for instance, to find a picture of the two of them together. There are several pictures of the two of them in groups of people together, but there are none of the kind of grip and grin pictures that you would normally expect to see. There are no pictures of just the two of them together at all. And I think that was largely because they posed dangers to each other, particularly in the case of King with Kennedy. Um, Robert Kennedy needed to keep his distance publicly from Martin Luther King. And so whatever connection they had, uh, Kennedy was anxious not to not to flaunt. And why? Why was Martin Luther King dangerous to Robert Kennedy? Well, Martin Luther King was a controversial figure in the white community. And, you know, now, of course, he's embraced and accepted and there's a holiday named after him. But there were lots of people who were very wary or hostile when it came to Martin Luther King. Lots of white voters thought he was a troublemaker. Lots of Southern voters would have had even more unkind things to say about him. And he was a divisive figure. He was, you know, he was considered a rabble rouser, as moderate as we think of him now. And Bobby Kennedy and the Kennedys, Jack Kennedy, but particularly Bobby Kennedy, who was paid to examine these kinds of things and care about these things, felt that there were white votes to be lost if they were seen to be too cozy with Martin Luther King. So he took care to make sure that didn't happen. And then a pivotal moment occurs two weeks before the 1960 election, the one in which JFK was running for the presidency. It's close. JFK is down in the polls. Then King is arrested and sentenced to hard labor. Tell us about that and what happened. Well, what happened was that that, uh, King was on parole um, in Georgia and parole on – from – a protest arising in the civil rights movement. Um, and he stayed, he was part of a, a, a sit-in and a, uh, in a protest in a department store in, in Atlanta with a, segre- a segregated uh, department store where blacks were not allowed to sit at the restaurant. And he was arrested. And because technically he was on a parole violation, he was on parole. This was considered a violation and he was carted off to, to a penitentiary in the, in the middle of the night. Um, and this was terribly frightening, you know, for a black man to be in a Georgia state penitentiary and to be dragged off in the middle of the night with nobody monitoring what was going to happen to him. I mean, there were fears for his safety, to put it mildly. Coretta King was was uh, terribly frightened. She was pregnant at the time. And the Kennedys in the in their in Kennedy political campaign circles, the question was the question arose whether there was something they could do um, um, on uh, to help King um, and and perhaps score some points in the black community. And the suggestion was made by some Kennedy advisors that perhaps John Kennedy could call Coretta King and offer to help in any in any way he could. And over Bobby Kennedy's objection, I mean, Bobby Kennedy would have again thought this was catering too conspicuously to the black civil rights community and to King in, individually. Um, over his objections, um, they did call Coretta King, and word got out um, that he had done it. And it, tur- it, it turned out to be incredibly politically advantageous. It was highly, the move was highly publicized in the black community, and it arguably 
um, elected John Kennedy president because the black vote proved crucial in several northern states. But Robert Kennedy was opposed to the move. Robert Kennedy always saw this. Robert Kennedy had a more traditional political point of view, and he didn't see the opportunity that this offered. And so he was opposed to this. At the same time, and this was this was this was uh, this was common for him. This was sort of his M.O. in a way. He had his visceral reaction, but he often had secondary and tertiary reactions. And when he realized that King had been thrown into jail on a technicality, um, the story always was that he was so outraged by the unfairness of this all, the unfairness which he viewed as sort of a stickler for for the law. This was not the way the law was meant to operate. And he called up the judge and said, you know, why is why is Martin Luther King in jail and get him out of there? I mean, it really was a highly improper thing for Robert Kennedy to do. Um, but it helped spring Martin Luther King from jail and not only won the Kennedy's greater affection in the black community. And as I say, the, the what they had done was very widely publicized in the black world. There were leaflets that were circulated in the black churches you talk about micro-targeting, it was something that was not publicized in the white press, but it was in the black press. And so black voters turned out in, in, in very large numbers in, in various swing states in the north, like Illinois and Pennsylvania, and helped put John F. Kennedy over the top in the election. So as wary as they were of Martin Luther King, the Kennedys were really in his debt because arguably Martin Luther King elected John Kennedy president. Wow, that is so interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't think any of us thought that that would have been the thing that really changed it. And you really uncovered it through this book, David Margulit, Through the Promise and the Dream. So the Kennedy administration comes in as a result, uh, at least partially, perhaps, of Martin Luther King. And Robert Kennedy is the head of the Justice Department. He's put in, in as the attorney general in charge, really, in, of enforcing the law of the land, how did he go about dealing with civil rights? This was a time when there was the, the 1954 Civil Rights Act had passed. How did he go about dealing with it? Was he giving a full-throated support to the law? Well, certainly the Martin Luther King and other people in the civil rights world were very, very frustrated with the Kennedys, and they felt the Kennedys were dragging their feet that having encouraged people to go out and register to vote, um, that they weren't protecting the people who were trying to do that. They weren't pushing aggressively for civil, for new and more expansive civil rights legislation. They hadn't signed um, an executive order to desegregate federally supported housing. There was great frustration in the civil rights community over the Kennedys and, the, and their foot dragging. It's interesting because in the black community, there was greater support among the rank and file for the Kennedys than there was among Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins, and some of the other civil rights establishment. It's because the Kennedys, the Kennedys were very good at symbols and, and, and very good at image. And they appointed more blacks throughout the administration to higher positions than prior administrations had done. Blacks were more conspicuous around Washington and in the Kennedy administration they had, than they had been in the Eisenhower administration. In that sense, the Kennedys had a very easy act to follow. But in fundamental ways, things were going very, very slowly. And 
there was great frustration. There was a feeling of betrayal that the Kennedys had promised great things and had ridden into the White House, really, um, with the support of black America and was moving very slowly. And part of the frustration was, I think, directed at Robert Kennedy because he was seen as usual as the more pragmatic of the two Kennedys, whether fairly or otherwise. He was seen as John Kennedy's hard-headed political advisor. And he had a bad history with the black community, which needs to be explained a little bit, Francesca. You know, white liberals had always been wary of Robert Kennedy. It's hard to imagine this now when he's considered a liberal stalwart. But, you know, he had worked for Senator Joseph McCarthy and had, had been associated with McCarthy's brand of virulent anti-communism and red baiting, which made Robert Kennedy a suspect figure among white liberals but it made, him, it made him even more radioactive in a way among black leaders because many of them historically had been left-wingers and some of them had been communists like Paul Robeson or W.E.B. Du Bois. And so for them to be called an anti-communist, quote-unquote, was not, to be, not only to be illiberal and opposed to civil liberties, uh, but it also it was code for racism. And so there was great wariness of Robert Kennedy in, in, in the black establishment and horror, in fact, when he was named attorney general. And that was why M Martin Luther King said, you know, you've got to find me his moral center. I don't I don't want to hear any more bad things about him. I know all the bad things about him. You know, help me work with the guy. So initially, I think there was more goodwill toward John Kennedy than there was toward Robert Kennedy. It's unfair in a way because Robert Kennedy... I think more than John Kennedy had a, a visceral sense of right and wrong and uh, sort of an instinctive feeling for underdogs. And Robert Kennedy had actually had some interesting and meaningful encounters with individual blacks earlier in his life. I mean, just to cite one example, he had led the Speaker's Bureau when he was in law school at the University of Virginia, and he had brought Ralph Bunch, the prominent black diplomat. He had brought him in to speak to, into Charlottesville, which was still a Jim Crow segregated community. And he had insisted all the way up to the top of the University of Virginia that Ralph Bunch be allowed to speak before an integrated audience, as Bunch insisted he would only speak to. And Kennedy had made that happen. So Kennedy had a certain instinctive feeling for right and wrong and for people being shafted. And so even though he very consciously and, and throughout his life liked to say that he didn't like to differentiate between the races and he viewed all poor people, so he didn't view people through a racial prism, he had a certain sympathy for people who were dumped on, I think perhaps more than John Kennedy ever did. And over time, I think he became John Kennedy's better angel. And, you know, there's a fascinating discussion in your book, David Margulik, in The Promise and the Dream, the untold story of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. It's about a meeting in New York City that was organized by James Baldwin, but was called by Robert Kennedy, who wanted to talk to black leaders. So, presumably, this came from a really genuine place where Bobby Kennedy you know, wanted to engage in a conversation, but it didn't go so well. Well, it's a very interesting episode, Francesca. It's been written about before, but I tried to dig into it more deeply than anybody else had. And I think my account is the longest and the most complete of this meeting. 
And it wasn't only because it was colorful in and of itself. It's because it reflects something interesting about Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was curious. Bobby Kennedy wanted to know things. Bobby Kennedy was not afraid of confronting people and not afraid of being placed on the defensive in a way. He wanted to, he wanted to learn things. And so he suggested he had met with the you know people like King and and Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young and A. Philip Randolph, the black civil rights establishment. He knew these guys, but he wanted he wanted to speak to people who were a little bit edgier and more likely to teach him something. And you know James Baldwin, the writer, was obviously somebody who who had a lot to teach Robert Kennedy, and so Kennedy invited him down to his house in Virginia. The, the conversation was short because um, Kennedy had to go somewhere. Baldwin was late. So Kennedy said, let's get together tomorrow. I'm going to be in New York and maybe you can get some of your friends together. And uh, so Baldwin, disbelieving, he couldn't believe he was going to be meeting with really the second most powerful man in the country, um, get an audience with him, rounded up some of his friends and his friends were an interesting collection of people, Harry Belafonte, Lena Horne, Lorraine Hansberry, um, other black educators, and, and not the civil rights establishment, but principally a more artsy crowd. Um, and they met at Joe Kennedy, old man Kennedy's apartment um, in Manhattan. And I think Robert Kennedy expected to be praised for being, for his openness and for soliciting them and for... for um, wanting to hear what they had to say. But the meeting turned out differently than that, largely because one of the people who'd been invited that day was a man named Jerome Smith, a freedom rider from New Orleans, um, who'd been very active in protests throughout the South and especially in the freedom rides and had been beaten very nearly to death um, in Macomb, Mississippi, when he showed up with a group of core workers um, to check out whether the whether the bus station there had really been integrated or not, and they were set upon. All the lo the local law enforcement establishment stepped aside and let these men be men and women be beaten mercilessly, and no one was more badly beaten than Jerome Smith, um, who never recovered from his wounds and was in New York the day of the Baldwin meeting because he was getting treatment at a New York hospital, and he came to the meeting, and when Kennedy started to boast about the administration's record on civil rights and how you know how attentive they were and how they were doing better than anyone had done before and how they were partly responsible for the resolution in Birmingham that had helped it desegregate and break Jim Crow after the famous Birmingham protests with the police dogs and the fire hoses. Um, Jerome Smith wasn't having any of that, and he said, you know, you can tout your record, but people like me are getting beaten to a pulp in the South, and where are you guys? And don't give me all of this. You're not protecting us. And uh, when he spoke out and, and spoke out very forcefully um, to Robert Kennedy, all of the other people in the room took his side and started dumping on Kennedy, and Kennedy was very put out. This is, again, typical of Kennedy, that he expected to be appreciated for what he was doing. His reservoir of goodwill was, in a sense, a little shallow. And his first reaction when he was challenged was to get his back up and to get very angry about it and to feel put out and, and, and unappreciated. And he was very bitter after the meeting. And people thought the meeting was a great step backward because here was Robert Kennedy being disrespected by a, a, a group of prominent blacks and, 
you know, who knows what kind of backlash there would be. But Kennedy was predictable in the sense that he had second thoughts and third thoughts. He wasn't he digested this. He didn't always he swallowed it right away, but it took him a time to digest it. And after a few days, the lessons of what these people had had said began to began to sink in. And he began to think that maybe they had a point and maybe this maybe this individual freedom rider had a point. And if Kennedy had been subjected to the brutality that he'd been subjected to, Kennedy would feel the same way. And Kennedy evolved and he was constantly evolving and he had the capacity to evolve. And it's only it's shortly after that that John F. Kennedy gives his famous civil rights rights speech of June 12th. I think it's the 12th, the 11th or the 12th. 1963, where he calls for sweeping civil rights legislation. It's a speech that I remember giving his giving. I was 11 years old, and it's a speech that I never forgot. And even watching it now, it's a highly emotional thing to watch. It's the speech that the civil rights world had been waiting for John F. Kennedy to give for more than two years. And the story is that he gave it at Robert Kennedy's urging. Everybody else in the administration told him not to do it. But Robert Kennedy told them that he should do it, and he did do it. And that was the night that he introduced what became the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that John Kennedy himself didn't live to see. You're listening to Writer's Voice, and we're talking with David Margulick about his book, The Promise and the Dream. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about post-assassination of John F. Kennedy, because that's when Bobby Kennedy really began to evolve and in some ways, Martin Luther King also evolved. This was, you know, Bobby Kennedy became senator from New York. Martin Luther King got the Nobel Peace Prize. Both men seemed to evolve toward an understanding of how important economic inequality was, as well as race in the fight for social justice. I wonder if you could talk about that evolution um, in both of them. Well, it's, it's interesting that both of them, I mean, Bobby Kennedy certainly evolved as a result of the assassination, and I think it, it really changed fundamentally his whole perspective on life and time and politics and commitment. And he evolves really very dramatically and becomes the tribune, the great tribune of the underprivileged in the wake of the, the assassination of his brother. Martin Luther King also has to evolve because he's graduating from his activism in the South and, and, and changing the law and uh, tackling the much more intractable civil rights problems of the North, which in a way are, pose much more of a problem for him and turn him into a more controversial figure, even in the black community where he's taking it from, you know, from both sides, more extreme and more traditional sides in the black community. What's interesting to me is that, yes, they both evolve and they gradually end up in roughly the same place you know, concerned about the, the wider economic injustices in the society, concerned about the terribly destructive effect of the Vietnam War um, and how the Vietnam War is leeching all of this money away from civil rights and the great society and ameliorative programs that Johnson had set into place only to sort of abandon them in, as, the, as, the, as the war intensified. The great tragedy of these two men is that even when their causes came to overlap, they never really became allies. They still kept their distance from one another. In fact, in some ways, 
they saw one another less in the last four years of their lives than they did in the previous three when Bobby was attorney general and the two of them would have overlapped more simply because their jurisdictions overlapped. It was as if they were in they were in the habit of being of keeping a certain distance from one another. And even when they might have been allies more conspicuously, they weren't. Martin Luther King still posed dangers for Robert Kennedy, particularly as he became a vocal opponent of the Vietnam War. He had the freedom to do that in a way that Robert Kennedy didn't because Robert Kennedy was identified with the war and had been present really when the war had intensified under his brother. And so he had to he had to approach the war and his opposition to the war more slowly and judiciously than Martin Luther King did. So the two of them never never really overlapped as much as they should have. And it's a great tragedy. There was still a racial divide between the two of them. And one of the great paradoxes in their twin careers is that, you know, most people will associate the two of them now and forever with the speech that Robert Kennedy gave the night that Martin Luther King was killed, the speech that Kennedy gave in Indianapolis extolling and eulogizing Martin Luther King. And one of the ironies of that speech is that that was really the first time publicly at any length that Robert Kennedy had ever spoken about Martin Luther King and praised Martin Luther King. And I think that he really felt free to do that only once Martin Luther King had died. That was David Marglick talking with us in 2018 about his book, The Promise and the Dream. Go to writersvoice.net to hear the full interview. That was David Marglick talking with us in 2018 about his book, The Promise and the Dream. Go to writersvoice.net to hear the full interview. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Rhiannon.